Good morning, Johnson Ferry. So good to be with all of you today. We've had a great day of worship already. And before we jump into our Bible study today, and if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're gonna have it on the screens where you can share it uh, with someone near you. But I wanna say just what a privilege it is that we get to do this every week. I know for a lot of us who have followed Jesus for a number of years, we take for granted what we're doing right now. You know, getting together with other believers, singing to God, praying to God, fellowshipping, conversating, you know, is that a word, conversating, conversing around uh, the things of God, and certainly coming to this time of Bible study where we open up God's word and we ask for him to speak to us through his word. These are powerful things that we do every week, and today we're gonna do that again in Genesis chapter three. The most fundamental question that humans have asked since the beginning of beginning of time, whether they've articulated this way or not, is this, who am I? In fact, that's a question that maybe a lot of you are wrestling through when you think about your life, who you want to be, who you aim to be, who you thought you'd be, but you're not, ways you think you're not measuring up to this ideal of who you want to be. And a lot of us ask that question all the time, who, who am I? Our society wrestles that question, and so we write books about it. There's some plays written about it. There are whole movies that are all about identity and identity crisis and how we go through that. In fact, one of the more famous movies in the last couple decades when it comes to identity crisis is this movie, uh, the Jason Bourne movies. I know you guys have seen this movie. And this whole movie is about a guy who has amnesia and cannot remember who he is. And so the whole plot of each movie follows that. Uh, I enjoyed shooting those movies. They were great. And uh, just kidding. Kidding, inside joke. Just kidding. I actually have a new one coming out. It's called The Born Divinity. It's going to hit the theaters. And I'm uh, just kidding. But uh, yeah, clap for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's going to go downhill from here. All right. So, but those movies are all about who who am I? And even though they make for a good movie, a lot of us, in fact, a lot of you, are wrestling through that question: Who am I? Now, if I were to walk up to you and ask you a question like that, you would probably start to give me some different marks of identification. In fact, here's a couple that people throw out when they just talk about themselves. Here's, here's a list, this is an exhaustive. You might talk about your ethnicity, you might talk about your gender, in our day and age, your sexuality, your race, your nationality, maybe it's your age, your culture, your physical or mental capacity, occupation, possessions, marital status, hobbies, you can go on. I mean, this is what we do, right? Like, who are you? And we start to describe your profession. I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor, I'm a pastor, I'm a janitor, I'm, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm old, I'm young, I'm black, I'm white, I'm Japanese. I'm, you know, all these things that we talk about, and those aren't wrong. In fact, when you read the scriptures, you often see that people are described through the same exact kinds of marks of identification. But they become wrong when we take them and make them the ultimate thing about us. As if the most important thing about you is that you are a man or a woman. Or the most important thing about you is that you're black or white or Japanese. Or the most important thing about you, you know, fill in the blank. And those become a false identity. And we do this all the time. We project ourselves in ways that we want people to see us. Social media. Most of you in this room are probably engaged in social media. I am too. And think about it, from your profile descriptions to the pictures that you post to the language that you use, all that is meant to project something about who you are. And that's really rooted in this idea of identity. 
God wants you to discover his identity for your life. Now, I don't know where everyone is today. I know we have people that are here for the first time, people that have been here for months, years. We've had a lot of new faces in the last year. We've had a lot of growth here at Johnson Ferry. So I don't know where all your stories are or where you've come from, but I know a lot of us are wrestling through these questions of identity, and that's been at the heart of this series we're doing called Being Human, discovering what does it mean to be made in the image of God, and how does that shape our life? Today's message is called Being Fooled. Because we're gonna look again in the book of Genesis and Adam and Eve, and we're gonna see that they were tempted to believe things about God that weren't true, and in essence, tempted to adopt a false identity other than the one that God wants them to live in. And then we're gonna look at what the difference that Jesus makes for us to have an identity rooted in him. So let's look, if you would, at Genesis chapter three. Again, think about this idea that we're created on purpose, for a purpose. And we're gonna look at verses one through seven. We're gonna get to a lot of the chapter, but I wanna start by reading Genesis three, one through seven. If you have a Bible, that's awesome. If you don't, that's okay. We're gonna have the scriptures on the screens for you. But let's all stand together as I read for us Genesis three, one through seven. This is what God's word says. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of his fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Let's just hit pause here and pray that God would speak to us. Father, as we now open up your word and we think about this, God, would this not only be some ancient story in the scriptures, but God, would we see ourselves in how we're tempted to believe the same lies about you, about reality, about our identity? God, would our identities be rooted in Jesus and what you say about us, but help the story to teach us. And we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Throughout the series, we spent most of our time in Genesis 1 and 2, so fundamental to God's design for us as human beings. But Genesis 3 is such a pivotal chapter. In fact, there's one theologian Uh, W.H. Griffin Thomas, who said that this chapter is the pivot on which the whole Bible turns. In other words, the story of God and the brokenness of man is on display here in chapter three. We live in a broken world. And biblically speaking, it comes from this very story when sin entered into the world and brokenness came into God's design. 
And it came, yes, to the hands of Adam and Eve, we'll look at them, but also came in the temptation of this serpent, who we know from later scriptures is the devil, is Satan. Now at this point, some of you, especially if you're new, you're thinking, gosh, I don't know if I believe the whole devil thing, is the devil real? Well, the, the Bible portrays Satan as being a real created being. And though today's message is not on Satan, it would be a beneficial for us to think about for a second, who, who is the devil? Who or what is the devil? Now, we don't know what he looks like. A lot of people get an image in their mind like this. This is what you think he looks like. You know, he's got a red face. He's got the horns. He's always wearing a tie because ties are from the devil. We know this. This is, this is true. And we tend to think about the devil as some kind of character, but the reality is that Though none of us have ever seen the devil, the Bible describes him as masquerading as an angel of light. In other words, you would be attracted to him. There'd be something winsome, compelling about him if you were to see him. He's a created being. He doesn't have the same power as God. He does have a measure of power, but he's not omniscient like God, meaning he can't know everything. He's not omnipotent. He's not all powerful like God. But he does have the power to influence. He has the power to tempt. And what we see in this text is that his main goal in your life is to ruin your life, and his main tactic to achieve that goal is to lie. He loves to lie. He loves to take enough of the truth where you think, well, that sounds truth-ish, but then he mixes enough error where it leads you into a lie. We're going to see that he does that with Adam and Eve today. His main tactic is that the devil loves to put question marks where God has put periods. God told Adam and Eve, you can have all these trees you want, all the fruit. There is more than enough for you. Just don't touch this one in the middle, the tree of the garden of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. And what does Satan say to them in verse one of chapter three? He says, has God really said? Loves to put question marks where God puts periods. And he loves to lie. And if you think, well, I just don't know about the whole Jesus thing. I mean, I know the Jesus thing, but the whole Satan thing I struggle with. Well, Jesus himself taught about the devil. Jesus knows the devil and taught about the devil. In fact, one time in, in the New Testament, Jesus is talking to a bunch of Jewish people. Now, Jesus himself was Jewish. And a lot of the audience that he taught were people that were Jewish. So they knew the scriptures. And he was talking to this one group of people in John chapter eight who thought, you know, we're good with God because we are of the seed of Abraham. We're Jewish. That's our heritage. We're good with God, right? And Jesus says something to him that is a very harsh statement, but it's worth, it's worth bringing to your attention because it teaches about Satan. This is what it says in John chapter eight. I'll have it on the screen, verse 44. He's talking to them, and here's what he says. You are of your father, the devil. Apparently, Jesus never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. And this is what he says. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Why? Because he is a liar and the father of lies. What that means for us is that we have to be careful not to be tempted, not to be influenced by the lies of the devil. So let's look at that today. Today I want to talk to you about three lies that you will be tempted to believe 
in our world today. And then we're going to talk about the identity that God wants us to have in Jesus. So let's first of all talk about three lies. And I think these are relevant if you're a student, if you work in a corporate workspace, even if you're a stay-at-home mom, a grandparent, I I think there's relevance in every single situation that we're in when it comes to these lies, maybe more in some than others. But here's lie number one. It's this, you control your life. You control your life. Adam and Eve were told by God not to eat from this tree. In verse three, this is what the woman replies. This is Eve, of course. She says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. That's true. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Interesting that she added that. God never said not to touch it. Or you will die. So the consequences from God were clear. Eat this and death will come. And what does Satan do in verse four? The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. In other words, God's not in control of your life. You're in control of your life. You're the one who determines whether there's life or death. That's the lie that we are tempted to believe. And a lot of people live as if that were true. There's a famous poem that was written I think in the 1800s or early 1900s, uh, called Invictus. It gets repeated a lot. Maybe you've heard it has this line in it. It says something like this. It says, it it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. A lot of people think that's true. I'm the captain of my soul. It doesn't matter what the charges are against me. I'm the one who determines life. And we get to make a lot of decisions in life that would lead us to think that. Yes, you make decisions about your career, your college, where you're gonna live, whether you buy this house or that house, whether you retire this time or that, you get to make a lot of decisions. And we can get lulled into thinking because we make some decisions that we get to make all the ultimate decisions. But you cannot choose the day you're born. And God does not want you to choose the day that you die. Which is why as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that's why we're pro-life. It's why we try to advocate for every human life from the womb all the way to the tomb because we believe that every single human life is worthy of dignity, honor, respect because they're all created in the image of God. We don't get to play God when it comes to being the source and the author of life. But Satan says, you won't die, you control your life. And when they believed that lie and they ate the fruit, by the way, what fruit was it that they ate? Anybody know? You want to say apple, but it doesn't say apple. In fact, it just says fruit. I'd like to think it was a passion fruit. Doesn't that just sound sinful? Like they ate a passion fruit or a dragon fruit. Those are disgusting or something like that. But they ate the fruit. You know what happened when they did? Death came into the world. Death, yes, they physically died, but spiritual separation from God. That's how the Bible talks about death. Notice in verse 30, excuse me, 22 and 23, it says, 
But then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out with his hand and take fruit also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Now there is separation between Adam, Eve, and their creator, because they believed the lie. I wonder if a lot of you are believing that lie that you are the source of life. You are in control of life. That's lie number one. All right, lie number two. Lie number two is something a lot of you are believing. I do at times too. It's this, God wants to limit your happiness. He wants to limit your happiness. Now we like happiness. If you wanna insert the word joy, that's fine. We like joy, we like happiness, things are fulfilling, that's a good thing. In fact, those are enshrined even in our country, Declaration of Independence, these three inalienable rights. None of you have a clue what the word inalienable means, but they are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We love the idea of happiness, but we struggle to know what is happiness and how do you get it? And our normal tactic is that we chase after things that we think will make us happy, and then they don't. Those things could be money. Maybe if you could just have a relationship with this person, girlfriend, boyfriend. Maybe if you could just get this big of a house, get in this certain college, achieve this much for retirement, get this amount of beauty or health or all these things. None of them are always, they're not always bad things, but we think if I can just get that thing, then I'll be happy. And they never do. And, and what we think is that because we're free to do these things, once we get them, it'll all lead to more freedom and happiness. And ultimately what they do is lead to bondage. Here, here's a good example. 15 or so years ago, they had these things on these new phones and they called them applications, apps. Like no one knew what that was. But here's what they promised you. They promised you that they could save you all this time. Remember that? Like once you got this phone, there are all these tasks that you can now do and, 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 no, and now you're gonna have all this free time, all this margin, all this rest because now you have this amazing time saver on your phone. And a lot of us believe that. But you know what we did, of course? We downloaded the app, we did the thing and then with all the extra time, you know what we did? We downloaded a bunch of other apps and figure out a bunch of other things to do. And now we feel even more stressed out, more exhausted, like we have even less margin now we had back then. And people long for that day because we think you know, we're free to do all these things, but now we feel like we're in bondage. I think that's why it's so fascinating to me how you know, all the generation stuff is cyclical. Like this younger generation, they all seem to be enamored with the 80s and the 90s, which is just so odd to me. I mean, even the way, you know, the dress code, I mean, they even brought back mullets. What in the world are you thinking? You're bringing back the mullet. Achy, breaky, bad, mistakey. That, this is a problem. It's a problem, right? It doesn't look good. It's a problem, all right? And I think, I think one of the reasons, I think one of the reasons is because there is an appeal to life before technology. Because what we thought would bring us freedom feels a lot like bondage. Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open. You'll be happy, you'll have freedom. And all it does is lead to bondage. And when they ate the fruit, you know what they have for the first time? Shame. Notice what happens, look at verse eight through 13 in chapter three. 
They had eaten the fruit in verse eight. Now they heard the, in the sound, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Here's a pro tip. When God asks a question, he already knows the answer. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Adam had never been afraid of God before this moment. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate. Some things have not changed since the beginning of time. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here's the blame shifting, right? God, you gave me this woman who I didn't even ask for. She's the one that did it. And that's why this happened. You know, the woman's like, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent's fault. You know, blame shifting is what, and all this sin and shame now exists in the world. And they cover themselves up with fig leaves or some kind of leaf because they have shame. Isn't it interesting that they thought if we just eat this fruit, we'll be free. But then all they had was bondage. Tim Keller is a pastor that a lot of you have heard of, probably read some of his books or heard his talks. He made an interesting comment a couple years ago in an interview. He's talking about how to share the gospel. And the gospel is the summary understanding of why Jesus came, this good news of Jesus. And he just made this interesting conversation. He said like 20, 30 years ago, the way people got to the gospel was to say, hey, I know you think you're a good person, but you're not. Let me talk to you about Jesus. There's a lot of Bible verses that back that up. And so we had presentations like, hey, if you were to stand in front of a holy God who said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? The idea is that you think you're a good person, but according to God's standard, you're a sinner. And let me tell you about the grace of Jesus. Still a needed conversation today. But he said, if we could change the gospel presentation today, it would be this. I know you think you're free, but you're actually in bondage. Let me talk to you about Jesus. And I think what he's pointing out is that we live in a, in a day and in a generation with so many options and we can do anything, but what you see person after person is people in bondage to all kinds of vices and addictions and things that aren't good for their soul, chasing this rat race of trying to prove themselves to be something in the eyes of others, making sure they have enough followers on Instagram or making sure they get enough money in their bank account, all chasing after identity. And they think they're free. But like Adam and Eve, they're hiding in the garden. And Satan loves to tempt them. God's not for you. God wants to limit your happiness. And we can believe the same lie. Lie number three. The third lie is this, and maybe this is the core of this whole conversation. You can't trust God. You can't trust God. Back in verse five of chapter three, he says, if you eat this, then God will know your eyes will be open. And he says this, and you will become like God. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you would find that to be ironic because we've studied that we are already like God, or at least we are made in his image and in his likeness. But Satan is saying this, you can become the same as God. You can't trust him. He's holding out on you. 
There's so much more at your fingertips. Don't trust God. And they eat and sin comes into the world. And you know, at its core, sin is about not trusting in God. Sometimes we talk about sin as though it's missing the mark. Like let's say that I had a bullseye and gave you a bunch of darts and I said, I want you to throw 100 darts. You might hit the bullseye nine, 10 times, maybe really good, 20, 30 times, I don't know. But no one's gonna hit it 100 times. And the Bible talks about sin like that. Sin is missing the mark. God has a perfect standard and none of us get 100 out of 100. None of us do. But sin is also not just missing the mark. It's, it's trusting in our intuitions, feelings, and perceptions more than trusting in God's great authority and goodness for our life. It's giving God the Heisman, the stiff arm, and saying, God, thanks for creating me. I'll take it from here. And when Adam and Eve trusted in their own intuition, instead of trusting in God, sin came into the world. And what we see in the story is this destruction, this shame, and this guilt. And Satan wins. Did you know that Satan also tempted Jesus? Many times. But there's actually a time when Satan tempted Jesus. And here's where I want to pivot to Jesus. Because I want you to see that Jesus does what Adam fails to do. If you will, take your Bibles. We're gonna come back to Genesis 3 in just a second. But I want you to flip to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, in Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four. And what we have in Matthew chapter four is this 40-day temptation that Satan does with Jesus. Now, context is so important here. The last verse of chapter three, verse 17, Jesus is being baptized and there's a voice from heaven. If I remember this happened three times in his ministry, here at his baptism, there's a voice from heaven. So when he was baptized, everyone heard a voice and the voice said this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now chapter four comes right after that and the whole temptation of Jesus is this, is he true the son of God? Or will he crumble like Adam did? And so Satan tempts him. So here's what happens, verse one. Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter, that's Satan, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him along into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and on their hands, they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to serve him. Now the devil... Might be many things, but he's not very creative. 
Because he says the same lies to Jesus as he did Adam and Eve. You can't trust God. Trust me, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. He's holding out on you. You don't want your happiness, Jesus. You can have all this. Just worship me. God's not gonna take care of you. You're starving out here in the desert. Turn these rocks into bread. Don't wait on God. You control your life, Jesus, not God. And Jesus, point by point, takes how the devil manipulates Scripture, and oh, and he's a master of manipulating Scripture. And Jesus takes Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and just lobs grenade after grenade at, at Satan about what is actually God's desire. And he wins this battle. And we see that the obedience of Jesus is seen, that he is the Son of God. And of course, he would demonstrate that later in the cross and in his resurrection. And what I love about that is that we see Jesus giving victory over Satan. And even back in Genesis chapter three, we see the grace of God on display. You say, how do I see the grace of God on display? Well, remember when Adam and Eve were filled with shame, what did they do? Their response was, I'm gonna cover myself up with what I can find around me to cover up the shame I feel in my life. But what does God do? Genesis three, go back there, verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He made garments of skin. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what animal was sacrificed, but I like to think it was a lamb. Remember when John the Baptist said of Jesus, here's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And even in Genesis 3, right here at the beginning of the Bible, we see this substitutionary atonement of God where he takes the skin of a sacrifice and provides covering for those created in his image. Did you know the same thing happened with Jesus? When Jesus died on the cross, he died for you that you could be forgiven that you could be redeemed, that you could be chosen, that you could be forgiven, that you could be reconciled, that you could become a child of God. And instead of you trying to think that I have to somehow cover myself, he covers it for you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. And that's the good news of the gospel, right? That's the good news of the gospel. And, and that's God's grace on display then and now in Jesus. So here's the big question that all of us have to think about when we hear about this grace that comes through Jesus and this idea of who I am. And here's the question. You got a choice. Either my identity is achieved or my identity is received. Either my identity is something that I achieve through my good efforts, through my work, through me getting enough money, through me having enough followers on Instagram, through me being seen in a certain way in the eyes of all, all that achievement, or my identity is received. And that's where the most important thing about me is that I am loved by God, I am a child of God, and I am redeemed by Jesus. One of my favorite verses is Galatians 2.20. I think it's just a, a wonderful reminder of the power of just living in the identity of Jesus. This is what that verse says, Galatians 2.20. It says, for I have been crucified with Christ. That's why we baptize people, right? Like you're dead to yourself, alive in Jesus. I've been crucified to Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love that because it says, I still got to live a life in the flesh. In other words, I still got to go to school tomorrow. I still got to go to work tomorrow. So I can pick up the kids from practice tomorrow. I still got to go to the doctor tomorrow. I got to do all this stuff in the flesh, but I'm going to do it in faith in Christ, knowing, knowing that he loves me and he gave himself for me. And that's my identity. I'm in Christ. How about you? Our hope and prayer every Sunday is that you would be put your identity in Jesus, receive his grace, move from death to life, have your sins forgiven by saying, Jesus, come into my heart, change me, save me, forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose in the resurrection that I could have eternal life with you. I want your identity to be my identity. And I think that's a next step for a lot of you today, to move from death to life in Jesus. And when the service is over, we'd love to talk to you about how to do that. Also, there's a lot of you that are followers of Jesus. And there's a good opportunity here for you to be reminded about your identity. So by way of just some habits that you might could form that would help for you to, to live in that identity, let me give you very quickly six habits that I think helped to shape our identity in Jesus. Again, you don't achieve, but you receive his identity. So here's six things that will help you. Number one, have daily unhurried time with Jesus. Not rush time, not like when I'm in the middle of other things, not when I'm driving down the road, just, I mean, unless you can somehow capture that, but just have unhurried time with Jesus. This last week, how much unhurried time did you have with the one who loves you and gave himself for you? Number two, here's a good habit, although you should ideally do this once, but to be baptized. Now, that might seem like an odd next step, but really baptism, when someone goes in the water and proclaims to the world, I'm buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life, that doesn't make them a Christian, but it is a, it is a, it is a, a symbol of identity. I'm identifying myself with Christ and the body of Christ. And a lot of you need to take that step. We're gonna baptize next week. That's your next step. We'd love to talk to you. We're also gonna be baptizing on Easter Sunday. How cool would it be to be baptized on Easter, to have your friends and family come see you be baptized on Easter Sunday? Be baptized. Number three, read and hear God's word. That's happening right now as I'm teaching the Bible and quoting scripture, and that's great. I hope that you're involved in connect groups, 419 groups, other groups where you're really digging into the word of God. But none of those None of those are as good as you spending daily time reading and hearing God's word for yourself. Number four, take communion. Like baptism, this is a symbol of identity, identifying with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the body of Christ. Number five, sing to God. Sing. You going, me? Sing? Yes, you sing. And believe it, I've said in front of you. I can't believe I'm saying that either. Sing to God. Sing to God. Songs are a wonderful way of us from being reminded of who we are in Jesus, taking in these deep, rich lyrics of who Christ is and singing them back to God. I love worship music that isn't about singing about God, it's singing to God and singing to him. And God sings over us. There's this amazing verse in Zephaniah 3, I think it's 17 or something. It says this, that God sings over you. I love that. 
Music is a wonderful way of just being recalibrated to our identity in Christ. And number six, especially in our, this is gonna be very countercultural, commit to your church family. We live in a day and age where people just kind of hop around church to church, you know, like this preacher, like this music, like this, kind of just all over the place. And honestly, please just pick one. I mean, whether it's this one or another one, as long as it's a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-proclaiming church, just pick one and, and dig in and serve and commit. Don't just be someone who checks out a service every now and then. Commit to your church family and take on that identity of being in Christ. It's not achieved, it's received. Satan wants to tempt us, he wants to fool us, but my challenge to all of us is that we live in Christ. I wanna pray for us this morning and just ask you to think for a second on what God wants you to do with his word today. And then we're gonna end uh, by doing a commissioning prayer of some of our sent ones. But let's pray before they come up here. Father, as we wrap up this time of looking into your word, I just pray that you speak to us as your people. God, how many of us have bitten into the fruit of Satan's lies? We think we control our life. We think that you can't be trusted. We think that God, if we give our life to you, it's just to be a life of limitations and rules and regulations. And Lord, we just speak against the enemy and say, we declare that no, in Christ is goodness, in Christ is fullness of joy, in Christ is satisfaction and sanctification and salvation and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation, in Christ is a new life. And Lord, I pray there's someone here today who needs to give their life to Jesus that right now, right now, they would say a simple prayer like, Jesus, come into my life. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. Change me, forgive me, save me. I give my life to you. Lord, I believe that you're saving someone right now who's legitimately praying that. And Lord, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, help us to walk in this identity that you've given to us. Not one that we achieve, but one that we receive from you. We love you, Jesus. We pray that in your name. Amen. Amen.